It's April 26th, 1717. Eastham, Massachusetts. A violent storm rolls across Cape Cod. Mr. Samuel Harding, a local farmer, is woken in the middle of the night. The howling wind and rain rattles the windows. At first, he thinks it's just the endless thunder that has disturbed his sleep. Through the squall, he hears what sounds like a wounded animal far off in the distance. A cry of pain. Is his mind playing tricks on him? He sits up in the darkness, straining his ears. It may just be the cold, but a shiver runs down his spine. A flash of lightning briefly illuminates the room. Silence, except for the creaking wooden beams overhead. The sound of the small house straining against the storm. Then he hears it, a banging, clear as day. Someone is at the door, stealing himself. He pulls on his coat, picks up a candle, and descends the narrow staircase. Outside, in the downpour, a figure looms in the darkness. Cupping his hand around the small flame, he slowly holds up the light to reveal a deathly apparition. A man, his face pale and body swaying, more dead than alive. The figure stumbles forward into the cottage, collapsing to the floor in front of the fire, a puddle of rain and seawater pooling around him. Barely audible, he manages to tell his tale. His name is Thomas Davis, a sailor and a survivor from the Widder Galley, this very evening wrecked upon the Cape. He says he is just a poor carpenter forced to join the pirate crew of Samuel Bellamy four months prior. Somehow, he has escaped the ravages of the storm and the sea, but only just. Surviving the widow's impact on the reef, the crashing waves threw him onto the rocks. For months, he has held out against the pirates and long dreamt of escape. He wasn't gonna slip away now without a fight. He clawed his way over jagged boulders before hauling himself up a 40-foot vertical wall of packed sand and stone. He trudged, half-drowned, near exhaustion, through the flooded fields of Eastham. Seeing the farm's night lights burning through the darkness and the rain, he had arrived here, finally, to shelter, safe from the storm, safe from bloody pirates. But poor Thomas Davis's troubles are far from over. For the impoverished people of Cape Cod, including farmers like Mr. Harding, a shipwreck is a godsend. A pirate ship is a gift beyond compare. The great wealth of the widow, the treasure of the famous pirate Samuel Bellamy, now lies just two miles away, scattered along the shore. Harding leaps into action he forces the exhausted carpenter up off the floor. Throwing Davis onto the back of a horse, he makes him retrace his steps back to the site of the wreck. Soon, word will spread. 
hundreds of eastern wreckers will descend like vultures. For two days they'll pick at the bones of the widow and whatever remains of her crew. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Just eight weeks before the fateful storm, Bellamy was riding high. His reputation was soaring. He is about to achieve what few other pirate captains could, the capture of a frigate-class ship of force, a vessel so powerful it would transform him into the preeminent naval force in the Americas. A ship finally worthy of his lofty ambitions. It's late February. 1717. Bellamy sails aboard the Sultana. In support is his old companion, the ten-gun Marianne, commanded by his trusted lieutenant, Paulsgrave Williams. After months of marauding the seas, the ship Bellamy has long dreamed of, his crowning jewel, is finally in his sights. It's the Widder Galley, an impressive 300-ton, three-masted, fully-rigged ship of at least 18 guns, with ample space for more to be added. And it's only two years old. It's the latest in top-of-the-line maritime technology, designed for speedy transportation of the highest-value commodities. Gold, ivory, sugar, and at full capacity, in excess of 700 enslaved people. The ship is just days out of Port Royal, returning to England, having unloaded its human cargo. The Widder is as powerful as anything the Royal Navy currently has stationed in the Americas. If Bellamy captures her, it will make him one of the most formidable pirates in the world. The memory of his bruising defeat to a heavily armed French frigate just a few months ago still hurts, and now gives him pause for caution. He needs to be smart here. This time, Bellamy initiates a game of deception. He raises the British flag and hails the widow. Dr. Manishak Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. 
if what you want to do is get close enough to a ship to attack it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be running around with a giant death's head on a red or black background. So often what you have is a system where the pirates would sail under a different flag, Dutch or French or English or Spanish or whatever colors. And then when they get close enough that action is imminent, might strike that flag and raise a black or red flag to, again, to sort of communicate like how they think this battle is going to go. It's a bright, mild winter morning off the northwest coast of Hispaniola. The sun sits high above the pristine waters, its golden reflection shimmering in the wake of the widow galley. At her stern stands the veteran Dutch merchant, Captain Lawrence Price. The gray-haired old mariner studies the distant ships with a growing sense of unease. These trade lanes are often busy with a variety of vessels. But despite flying British colors, this pair, a galley and sloop, seems suspicious. Through his eyeglass, Prince examines the Marianne's patched up sails. She clearly hasn't seen a port for some time. He then assesses the assorted crew on the deck of the Sultana. They don't look like Navy. As a former buccaneer himself, he knows a trap when he sees one. He has no choice but to continue with caution. After a full day's sailing, the distance is closing. The trailing vessels have continued to match his course changes, like predators stalking their prey. Still glued to the stern, now standing in the dusk shadow of the mainsail, Captain Prince is certain they're being hunted. There's still a good wind and his vessel is built for speed. The widow makes a break for it. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. Bellamy and Williams chased it for three days over 300 miles. But with Bellamy and Williams, they're each commanding ships in their pretty large fleet at this point. So they're definitely got all the sea power, they have manpower, so they don't give up. They keep going after the Widow. Now, finally, they get close enough after three days to switch out their flag for the Jolly Roger, the legendary pirate black flag with the skull and crossbones or cross cutlasses, despite the fact it was just a three-day chase. Prince realized, we have a larger ship, we have more guns, but we are vastly outnumbered in terms of manpower. After three days, Prince knows exactly what he's up against. The gap has closed. He can now easily make out the faces of the pirates, including one in a scarlet dress coat, dark hair trailing in the wind. Bellamy. They are now within firing range. As a last desperate act, Prince fires two shots at his pursuers. They miss. Bellamy holds off on firing back. He doesn't want to damage his prize. Instead, he brings his entire crew onto the deck. All 200 or so pirates rave and cheer, taunting the terrified sailors aboard the Widder. Many of the pirates are bizarrely dressed. They brandish their muskets, cutlasses and bikes. A jolt of terror shoots down Prince's spine as he looks upon these wild men displaying their trophies of war. 
The slaver crew of the widow are particularly shocked by the sight of 25 black men, unchained, brandishing weapons amongst their fellow pirates. Prince accepts the inevitable. This is not a fight he can win. They let loose the sails and come about. They surrender. Bellamy easily captures his greatest prize, and it's even better than he imagined. Bellamy actually got a really great surprise. It was newer than he realized. It was larger than he realized. It was clean. It was in great condition, but even better, it was full of valuables, more than he'd ever seen. It was full of sugar. It was full of indigo and also what was known as Jesuit's bark, which is what we call quinine. And this was a bark that helped not cure malaria, but take away the symptoms. So that was really valuable. And of course, loads of silver and gold from the sales of the enslaved people. So this was a huge, huge win because this ship alone was worth anywhere between 12 and 30,000 pounds of 1717 currency. All of it was actual gold and they were packed into like 50 pound bags all throughout the ships. After leading the pirates on a lengthy chase for three days, Prince might have feared harsh punishment. But curiously, Bellamy and his crew are kind and gracious, generous even. Bellamy gives Prince the Sultana in exchange, as well as a sum of silver and gold in compensation. Possibly the pirates don't fancy maintaining and manning two such large vessels, but it may also be evidence of Bellamy's good nature. Captain Prince, as a former buccaneer, is well known in Jamaica and likely well respected. Bellamy has no animosity towards him. Prince will have enough problems when he faces his employers. After transferring their mountain of accumulated wealth as well as additional cannons, they set sail again. The Widder is the flagship Bellamy has dreamed of. Not even the colony's Royal Navy warships can stand against him. With the bitter memory of defeat by the French frigate finally buried, he now heads north, back to where he first started, back to New England. He will lay waste the eastern seaboard and her rich merchant shipping. The capture of the Widder Galley alone writes his name into the history books. Its plunder has made Bellamy one of the richest pirates in history, with a fortune worth $120 million. But Bellamy isn't just making history. He's creating a legend. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Bellamy was a notorious and highly successful pirate, one of the few in this generation who successfully traded all the way up to having a frigate strength flagship. And that meant that the Royal Navy had to flee from his fleet rather than pursue it. So that made him one of the terrifying, dangerous class of pirates. And many of his plunders took place against New England vessels. And Boston was the center of the information, you know, media infrastructure of early 18th century British North America. It was the site of the only real newspaper and the largest city and center of commerce. So if things happened to Boston merchants, you tended to hear about it more loudly than if it happened to merchants in other parts of British North America and the Caribbean. So for all of those reasons that pushed his fame forward. The incredible rise of Bellamy from rural pauper to naval powerhouse and one of the wealthiest pirates in history was all achieved in a year and a half. Just 15 months ago, 
Bellamy set sail with Palsgrave Williams to salvage lost treasure scraps off the coast of Florida. He is infamous and respected, a famous tactician and a master of psychological warfare. Known for his mercy, but uncompromising with those who defy him. Through the spring of 1717, he plows northwards, plundering as he goes. His reputation swells still further. It is around this time that the most persistent part of the Bellamy legend is truly cemented. And the only part of the story that, allegedly, we have in his own words. It's early April 1717. Bellamy captures a merchant ship while cruising up the eastern seaboard. The widow's giant silhouette dwarfs the small sloop's skeletal figure. But Bellamy has no use for the captured vessel. He could return it to its captain, a Mr. Beer. His crew would rather burn it. Captain Beer is brought to Bellamy's cabin, where he finds the pirate sitting behind a large desk, studying a map. Bellamy is surrounded by nautical instruments and works under flickering candlelight. Wax drips down the golden base onto the table. Signs of success are everywhere. Chests, drawers, cabinets, all packed with riches. Several heavy-looking black velvet pouches of coin sit between them on the table, along with a crystal decanter of port and two glasses. Bellamy has rolled out the welcome mat. To beer in this lavish setting, the pirate captain sticks out like a dirty barnacle clinging to a clean hull. A parasite. Despite the fine clothes, the pirate appears dingy and weathered. His eye is drawn to Bellamy's rough, calloused hands. He suddenly realizes how soft his own hands feel. Soft and clammy. Bellamy stretches out, at ease, unlike the detained merchant captain. He offers Beer the opportunity to join his crew. Bellamy and Williams actually wanted to let Beer go. They're like, look, we want to let you go. We wish we could, but our pirates say we must sink your ship because you're one of those really wealthy people who's taking from people like us. But join us and show that you're better than those people. And according to Johnson, Beer says, I can't do that. I can't become a pirate. It goes against my conscience. According to Captain Johnson's account in A General History of Pirates, Bellamy's sympathy shifts and he gives the following speech. Though damn ye, you're a sneaking puppy. And so are all those who will submit to be governed by laws which rich men have made for their own security. For the cowardly whelps have not the courage otherwise to defend what they get by their knavery. But damn ye altogether. Damn them for a pack of crafty rascals and you, who serve them, for a parcel of ten-hearted numbskulls. Bellamy's reputation as being a sort of social revolutionary is tied, like so many things in the pirate mythology that we have today, to the general history of the pirates. It's a sort of a overturning of society leveling speech, where he considers that the people who are lackeys to the system to be, you know, scurvy dogs, and that the pirates have the moral high ground in all this. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. 
he's saying to this Captain Beer, they vilify us, the scoundrels do. When there is only this difference, they rob the poor under the cover of law, forsooth, and we plunder the rich under the protection of our own courage. He uses this speech as a way to try to convince Captain Beer to become part of his pirate clan. Now, this speech combined with an actual historical fact that during one of Bellamy's earliest captures in the Caribbean, one of the merchant sailors who was on the ship that was plundered later said that the pirates pretended to be Robin Hood's men. Those things combined to create this image of maybe these pirates were like Robin Hood in the broad telling of Robin Hood's story. He's taking from the rich to give to the poor. It is disputed whether Bellamy really said these words, if Johnson embellished it or indeed fabricated the whole thing. We can look to history for clues. If you really look at the speech and who was there and who might have heard that speech, it all starts becoming extremely plausible. The general history of the pirates has to be treated cautiously by any historian. In this case, believe it or not, although we haven't been able to find the exact document this is drawn from, it has the ring of truth for a few reasons. There was a captured captain who was brought over, we know from his own depositions, was brought over and ended up spending several hours in Bellamy's company on his ship. And then was subsequently released and sent back, he eventually made his way back to Block Island in Rhode Island. He was literate and he had plenty of time thereafter, after this encounter with the pirates, to have scrawled down in notes what he heard the pirates say. Other historians and authors are less convinced. No newspaper recorded this speech or much about the attack. And the only evidence we have for the speech is Johnson. The flowery language in the speech itself seems like something that wouldn't be uttered by a relatively uneducated pirate or that it would have been taken down so assiduously that goes on for a couple of paragraphs. And some of the imagery that he uses in the speech and some of the very words he uses in the speech are reflective of political statements and earlier statements by other historical characters. In fact, some argue that it is strikingly similar to an old legend from ancient history. This speech was very much taken from a speech between Alexander the Great and a pirate that was recorded from the ancient Macedonian period. So it's actually really unlikely that Bellamy himself made such a speech. This was possibly created just as fiction for the general history of the pirates. Likely the truth lies somewhere in between. Whether a social revolutionary or not, Bellamy is clearly a man with the courage of his convictions. Bellamy gives orders to ditch Captain Beer and his crew and set fire to the sloop. As the evening sky closes in, the widow and Marianne continue sailing north, bathed in a warm glow. To the east, the flames of Beer's burning sloop light up the sky. To the west, the last rays of the setting sun cleave the horizon in two. The reason for Bellamy and Williams' crews north are unknown. They are powerful enough to target the richest shipping lanes. But there's also the old Cape Cod stories of Bellamy's lover, Mary Hallett. Does Bellamy imagine a defiant return and resurrected love? Williams certainly has a family back on Rhode Island. Are they planning a great homecoming to distribute their incredible wealth? 
Some have suggested he intends to found a new pirate haven in Maine, a Nassau of the North. Unlike all his previous ambitions, this one might prove to be his downfall. A few days later, Bellamy and Williams are separated by a thick fog, rolling off the Chesapeake marshes and creek and onto the cold sea. Attempts to communicate between them prove useless, but Bellamy isn't worried. Williams is highly capable, and they know where to reconvene. Bellamy has no idea that he's seen his friend Williams for the last time. As the fog briefly lifts, Bellamy's lookout spots three ships sailing in convoy. He seizes the opportunity. The widder sweeps across the water. First, Bellamy takes a tired, leaking ship called the Agnes of Glasgow. Next, he seizes the 100-ton Anne Galley. Bellamy decides to keep her as a storage ship and places 28 of his men on board to run it. Finally, he takes another vessel, the Endeavour. With no sight of Williams, Bellamy continues to raid. It's morning on April 26, 1717, just off the coast of eastern Massachusetts. The widow captures an Irish trading vessel, the Mary Ann. There are 7,000 gallons of Madeira wine on board. Jackpot. The pirates brim with delight. The Mary Ann becomes the latest prize to join Bellamy's growing flotilla. Seven men, led by one Thomas Barker, stay behind to command the prisoners and steer the ship. The Widder, the Anne Galley, and now the Marianne continue northwest, but struggle to traverse the rough waters. Bellamy's vision is clouded by the returning fog which envelops the convoy. The air is lifeless and still. A cold chill runs through Bellamy and his crew. They know they're sailing dangerously close to shore, but the eerie silence lends the scene a dreamlike quality. They could be crossing the river Styx. Somewhere beyond the mist, the underworld awaits. Bellamy loses sight of the other vessels. He fears his ship might flounder and orders the fleet to halt. By chance, a small sloop named Fisher looms out of the fog. Bellamy commands the pilot to guide the flotilla through the harbourless shore of the Cape. The captain, Robert Inglold, can hardly refuse. The Anne Galley sails ahead with Fisher, followed by the Widder, and then Mary Ann. It seems their luck is returning. But Bellamy can smell trouble. There's a deep rumble in the distance. A storm is brewing. Waves toss the widder like a toy, pounding the hull. The clouds are ink black. Impenetrable sheets of rain drain the last sunlight from the sky. There is only darkness. Bellamy loses sight of the other ships. They hail the Marianne behind them to make more haste, but his attention is quickly diverted. A flash of lightning reveals a monstrous wave rising before them, maybe 30 foot high. The storm's cyclonic strength sends it crashing down. The impact rocks the widow, 
flooding the ship's sails and uprooting loose parts of the deck. They lilt hard to port. For a moment, the crew feared they'll capsize. For all its might, and despite the added ballast of silver and gold in her hold, the widow is at the mercy of the storm. Somewhere ahead of the widow, the crews of the Angalian fisher think they hear screams from a distance. They manage to come to anchor and hold fast amidst the maelstrom. Meanwhile, the Mary Ann has fallen far behind Bellamy's flagship. The pirates are in no fit state to sail anywhere. Since taking her captive, they've all been at the Madeira Wine. One pirate, Simon von Vorst, drunkenly takes the helm of the ship and drives it hard into the storm. He yells to his pale-faced prisoners that the king has given him a commission to make their fortune at the world's end. His wine-induced courage is short-lived. The Mary Ann loses control. It's leaking badly. Prisoners rush to trim the sails and turn the vessel around, but they are knocked off their feet by a blast of wind. Von Vorst scurries down into the hold, where terrified pirates and merchants alike desperately work the pumps in a bid to stay afloat. Finally, the pirate's nerve breaks. He pleads for God's mercy to deliver them from the storm. Back on the widow, things are no better. Waves swamp the deck, and the crew hold on for dear life wherever they can. Several poor souls are washed overboard and lost to the black abyss. Bellamy stands steadfast on the quarterdeck, barking orders. The widow's only hope is its anchor. Bellamy orders it be dropped. If it can hook the ocean floor, perhaps they can ride the storm out and avoid the jagged reefs. The anchor hits the seabed. The heavy iron chain tightens and the massive ship groans as she takes the strain. But the widow does not stop. Perhaps carried by the added weight of those precious metals and jewels stashed below. It's ironic, really. The widow crashes to a halt. Men are thrown through the air and smash into masts and decking. Bones break, bodies are beaten, some die on impact, others vanish overboard and are lost to the sea. One pirate is launched across the deck with such fury that his shoulder bone skewers a pewter teapot. Inside the hold, a wailing child, the ten-year-old John King, is crying out to be back in his mother's arms. Iron cannons and lead shot break free. Unleashed, they fly like arrows through the decks. In an instant, the young boy is crushed to death. Above board, standing defiantly at the helm, Bellamy watches the horror unfold around him as both ship and crew are torn apart. The widow basically breaks into pieces and everything is strewn all along the coastline. There were anywhere between 130 and 160 men on board the ship and they were all tossed into the water. The aftermath is something reminiscent of the sunken Spanish treasure fleet of 1715, the event that inspired the young Bellamy to set out on his path to piracy. 
The eastern beach is littered with coins, jewels, and other treasures. Like Bellamy and Williams before them, the Cape Cod locals descend upon the beaches to raid the remains of the widow. So people in coastal Massachusetts and other coastal parts of New England, storms like this hit all the time, and there was always the possibility that a ship might wash up onto shore. And so people were always kind of hanging around the coast after a storm because they would go in and try to scavenge any sort of wrecks that came upon. Well, the Widda was already really infamous. Bellamy was infamous. And when they see the wreckage of this massive ship and loads of cargo being washed up onto shore, cargo including things like sugar, indigo, textiles, and now bags of cash are also starting to wash up onto shore as well, kind of spilling out of the chunk of ship on shore. Word gets out and people begin scrambling down the coast to gather as absolutely much as they possibly could from this ship. Word spreads further and people from all the surrounding areas, from all over the state, all over the coast, start scrambling down to the wreckage site. Word gets out to the authorities who come and they try to organize things. They try to actually get people to stop salvaging because they're like, wait a minute, this is the stolen slave ship. Every single thing you're taking belongs to the crown, but it's absolute chaos. They can't control the mob of people who are there trying to get as many goods as they possibly could. By sunlight's return, the last bitter remnants of the storm still toss the seas. The rising tide starts to offer up lifeless bodies to the shore. Dozens of them. The beach is swarming with wreckers. One man spots a corpse bobbing in shallow water amongst splinters and shredded sails. The body is face down in the water, wearing a long, red jacket. The wrecker thinks it odd. It looks more like a wealthy merchant than a ragged sailor. Some silver in the pockets, perhaps. The wrecker drags the corpse out onto the beach and prizes a jeweled ring from a swollen finger. The skin is calloused and tough. Gold chains are tangled around the neck. The man flips over the body. He cringes at the disfigured face covered in a mess of dark hair, sand and seaweed. Attached to the torso, of four ornate dueling pistols. The man takes them for himself and walks away to the next body, Samuel Bellamy, one of a hundred dead pirates. Out of the lifting haze, the crew of the Mary Ann find themselves run aground on Pochet Island. Seven pirates make a run for it but are quickly caught by the local justice. In Boston jail, they are reunited with another very sorry-looking man, young Thomas Davis, one of the two survivors from the widow. It seems there's no end to the carpenter's misfortune. He too will be tried as a pirate, along with the others. As for the Anne Galley, their ship survived the night. So too did Williams on the Marianne. A month later, Williams would finally discover the fate of his friend. Did Mary Hallett know of Samuel Bellamy's fate? News of the wreck spread far and wide. Was it this last blow that finally drove her to despair? We'll never know. Black Sam Bellamy's meteoric rise to pirate legend comes full circle. It was the storm of 1715 and the wrecked Spanish treasure fleet that lured him into the business 
and it was a storm that took it all away. His entire piracy career seems to have lasted maybe a year and a half or so. And the real prime part of his career where he had large vessels like the Galley Sultana and then the frigate-sized vessel, the Widda, was just a matter of months. And so it shows just the level of impact and the hold that what they did in those brief periods of time had on the public imagination then. We think of Samuel Bellamy as one of the great pirates of the golden age for two primary reasons. One is this idea that he was the Robin Hood of the sea, kind of taking from the rich, giving back to the poor, and also because he possibly amassed the largest fortune of anyone in the golden age of piracy. You know, stressed by the fact that the piracy outbreak that Bellamy was part of was so consequential because it actually was threatening the stability of colonies and slave plantations and trade and essentially the empire. It really shook the consciousness in the transatlantic world. So who was Black Sam Bellamy really? It's impossible to untangle man from myth. Even in his own time, his notoriety was widespread, but the details are debatable. The precise location of the widow remained a mystery for 200 years. But in 1984, archaeologist Barry Clifford finally tracked down the remnants of a large galley with some interesting clues to its owners. Among the artifacts recovered is a ship's bell engraved the Widder Galley, 1716. Treasures, weapons, and other items seem to support various accounts of Bellamy's victims. Most striking of all is some disturbing biological evidence. A small shin bone along with a pair of child's shoes. The resting place of 10-year-old pirate John King. Although Bellamy himself was not much older when he left an impoverished Devonshire farm to seek his fortune at sea, and he turned the world upside down. Social revolutionary or common criminal? At the hands of a storm, Bellamy's incredible wealth was returned to the poor folk of Cape Cod. So in the end, he was a kind of Robin Hood, at least in death. Next week on Real Pirates, we reveal the tragic fates of the surviving Bellamy pirates. Trials, confessions, and executions. We see how the authorities deal with captured pirates. Can Thomas Davis prove his innocence? Will repentance save the others? Some will live to tell the tale. For others, the end is nigh. Much will depend on the opinion of one man, the moral inquisitor and confessor to pirates, Boston Minister Cotton Mathers. And what will become of Paul's Grave Williams, Bellamy's friend and accomplice? How will his crew react to the loss of Bellamy, as well as the incredible wealth that went down on the widow? Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by McAllister Beckson and Oman Khalid. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. 
Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 